Welcome to ACE Audio, the podcast that supports, educates, informs, and motivates manual therapists around the world. Hey everyone, Sean Brewster here. We have turned the tables a little bit today, and in this episode, I'm going to be interviewed by Jackie Tan on the Bodies Built Better podcast. Uh, So this one is where I'll be diving into all things manual therapy, mechanisms of effect, and just answering a whole lot of questions around uh, manual therapy and the things that we love and and do in clinical practice. So tune in, um, check out Jackie's podcast when you get a chance, Bodies Built Built Better. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. And so one of the beautiful things about massage, particularly gentle kind of therapeutic massage, is that that gentle compression kind of creates a, a, a subtle pumping motion on the nerves, which helps move a lot of the waste products out of the nerves or through them. And so where those irritants might have just accumulated before and produced their own irritation and pain and inflammation, massage can be useful to, to move that, those uh, waste products through and out of the nerves to reduce the irritation. Bodies Built Better podcast. I am your host, Jackie Tan, and it is so good to have you here today. This podcast is all about human performance, whether that's performance on the field or showing up at your very best every single day. I chat with athletes, health experts, coaches, and inspiring people doing extraordinary things. We explore the body's incredible ability to heal, adapt, and evolve so you can crush limitations, reconnect your body and mind, and discover your extraordinary potential. And today on the show, I chat with founder and director of Advanced Clinical Education, Sean Brewster. He has spent over 20 years in private practice as a myotherapist and exercise physiologist, and he also teaches both undergraduate and postgraduate programs. Sean has a very strong passion for the health industry, which is clear through his never-ending contribution to the space through his clinical work, conference presentations, seminars, retreats, articles, podcasts, and so much more. When Sean isn't treating clients, he's running his business, Advanced Clinical Education, and that is how I met Sean. I've completed a few courses now with Sean, and the thing that I love about his teaching style and approach is that he breaks down all the sciencey jargon and is able to communicate that in a way that is so easy to grasp and understand, and most importantly, retain and then apply it to your own practice. And so, for everyone out there who is thinking, why do I need to learn about how this works? Well, it's really important if you use massage as part of your recovery program, um, whether you know someone who's using it or whether you're wanting to get more out of it. So without further ado, let's get straight into it with Sean Brewster. Sean, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. My pleasure. Glad to be here. It's so good to have you because I have so many clients that ask so many questions about massage and about cupping and what's the difference between this and that. And I thought, what better way to answer these questions than to have one of Australia's best manual therapy educators out there. Oh, <laughs> so <shucks>. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so I thought we'd start with a pretty broad question um, and that's around titles because for someone who's looking for someone to help with their shoulder pain, mm-hmm. you know, they'll do a search and, you know, up comes a list full of different people like your massage therapist, your remedial massage therapist, there's manual therapist, there's mm-hmm. myotherapist, and the list goes on. Yep. How on earth can they decide, you know, who, who to see and, and, you know, what the difference is between all of these people? Yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it? And it's almost like every year someone invents a new title for for what we do. Um, (laughs) And then even with people within those different categories, like you'll have a massage therapist and then they'll call themselves a tactile therapist or a touch touch therapist. I've seen every version of it, you know, and it's no wonder the general public is confused about who does what. 
Um, Absolutely. And I don't know that there is an easy or simple way for the general public to figure out who they should see it. But I think the, the best thing to do is go by word of mouth, you know, recommendations. And mm. the, other, the other challenging factor within that is, of course, that you'll have, for example, uh, massage therapists, some of them will work a lot like a physio and then there'll be physiotherapists who will work a lot like an osteopath and osteopaths who really work nothing like an osteopath and work more like a massage therapist. And so everyone can have their own kind of bias within their modalities and their own focus in the way that they treat. And because of that, you can't really say that the best person to see for shoulder pain is this one or the best person to see for knee pain is this person because each mo each practitioner within the modality has their own specialty. So I think the best thing is you know, ask around. If you're a general, member of the general public and you've got an anchor pain or some sort of problem, ask your friends and family, who would they see? And then if you're still confused, a really good gatekeeper um, for the health profession, if you've got a medical problem, is obviously your GP and then they refer out. But the, the, a good gate, gatekeeper, generally speaking, for um, musculoskeletal type problems is, is physio. Physiotherapists have a very broad knowledge in assessment and treatment and management. And, and a good physio will refer on to another person if they don't think they are the best person to see for that. So uh, your physio is kind of like um, the triage or, or could potentially be like a triage nurse where you go to see the hospital, go to the hospital and the triage nurse will say, you've got this problem, you need to see this specialist or that specialist. So, so because of the physiotherapist's um, broad knowledge of musculoskeletal pain, they can potentially point you in the right direction. Perfect. Awesome. Well, let's go to the next biggest question of them all. <laughs> It, what does mass? What are the benefits of massage therapy? Because there's lots of people and um, I guess opinions that you know there's not many studies out there that sh to show that it is you know good for you or, or does have any long term effects. Yeah. But you know, massage therapy is one of the biggest recovery methods used by elite sporting clubs all over the world. So yeah. there there's something to this method. Absolutely. So um, yeah, and it, what and are it is the studies funny. around it? You, you mentioned the, the lack of studies to support massage, and that's, that is a message that is portrayed by a lot of anti-manual therapists. But at the same time, I could point you to hundreds, if not thousands of studies to support massage. And there is heaps of evidence to support that it is effective for all sorts of different things. The quality of the evidence varies, but that is the case for all, modality that we, exactly. all modalities we see. And so when we hear noise, and that's all it is, about um, you know the the low evidence to support massage or, other, or really any manual therapy, um, it really is just someone who doesn't have that bias trying to sell an anti point of view. Um, there is plenty of research. In fact, my my website has a whole research library that supports massage and all these other things we do. So um, yeah, it's easy to find that. Um, so what does massage do? The list is endless. Um, but there's, there's also some claims around what it can do that, is, that, that are unfounded. You know, that, and one of the, my, the classic things that, I, that really gets my goat is we, we often say massage and, you know, insert any number of other modalities here, helps to remove toxins from the body, right? <laughs> if you've watched any of my stuff on social media, you'll know that <laughs> I really hate this one. Yeah. Because what toxins are we talking about, first of all? Why are we so toxic? Shouldn't we be really unwell if we've got all these toxins in our body? And then how can possibly uh, physical compression and other techniques that we use with massage move those toxins out of the body? Like, where are they coming out of us? Where are they going when they come out? Are they contagious? Could somebody walk past us and catch them? Like, it's, there's yeah. so many, like, absurd questions that come off the back of that statement. So, you know, there's absolutely things that um, massage can benefit, and we can go into that. But there's so many things that often a lot of us pra practitioners will claim uh, that that can be achieved through massage that's just completely unfounded. And that's just old teachings, old thinkings that people haven't kind of remembered to question or, or, or um, been able to uh, find a way to justify. And, and we have to be really careful with that, I think. Absolutely. So let's dive into the benefits. Yeah, the benefits. Okay. Well, there's, there's very obvious things like circulation improvement. And, and we often throw that one around like, okay, so massage improves circulation. But, you know, what's the benefit of improved circulation? And I'd say that from a tissue level, so if we've got uh, a chronic injury, let's think of a classic example. So, you, you know, your average football player who comes out after, a, after no preseason training goes and kicks a ball and then his hamstring goes ping. Oh, that's right. I forgot I had a sore tight hamstring. It's been three months since I've kicked a ball um, and then it's sore again. So these kind of long-held 
poorly recovered injuries that sort of peak and trough over the course of a year um, can sit there under the surface. And yes, absolutely one of the things that can improve those old injuries is improved circulation, uh, blood supply, nutrition, oxygen. And so massage is one of those things that can improve local tissue perfusion, local tissue supply of oxygen and blood. Um, so that's one benefit. It can help with the healing process, but also just help with general tissue health. Um, we can have some improvement in lymphatic flow, um, especially if you're using specified, you know, um, specific uh, lymphatic drainage techniques and so on, which are much lighter, very gentle massage techniques. Um, we can have changes in pain presentations with classic things like trigger points. Everyone's heard of a trigger point before. Some people call them knots, but I have to point out that muscles don't tie themselves in knots unless you get them surgically detached at one end, tie them up and then reattach them <laughs> nice again. <bow>. So <laughs> That's right. Muscles don't actually have knots, even though that's the term we use. And so trigger points, which can produce all sorts of local and referred pain. And again, part of the reason why massage can help with that is because that improves circulation. So one of the causes of trigger points, one of the symptoms as a result of a trigger point is uh, a bit of a, a chemical soup in that area of the, of the trigger point, which irritates our nerve endings, pain receptors. And again, massage can help to move on some of those irritating chemicals, um, reduce the, the acidity within that tissue and therefore reduce the, the pain that it produces. Um, what else? Uh, we can have a, a, a change in fascial tension so the connective tissue that kind of is like the packing foam in our body gives our bodies its shape uh, our support and protection insulation buffering um, different surfaces in the body that fascia connective tissue can change its state based on forces we apply to our body so if we sit in front of a computer like this all day with our head forward getting closer and closer, closer to the screen as it does then the tissues in the back of our neck and in the hip flexors and other areas will get shorter and shorter and shorter if you stay there long enough, that connective tissue starts to deform to that shape. That's why people that sit in the desk their whole life get up at the desk and they're still kind of the shape of that desk mm. as they move about. And we see it in the elderly sit in a chair all day. They try to stand up and they can't straighten up well. So often that's a result of that connective tissue shortening. Massage is a great way to apply appropriate forces. It triggers some neurological and chemical changes, um, which we can go into more detail, which then change the state of that connective tissue um, can improve hydration of that connective tissue, elasticity of that connective tissue, and then we get better movement, better range of motion, less restriction, and less. Yeah, amazing. And that's just that's just scraping the surface. Exactly. It goes on and on and on. Exactly. Yeah. And if that's not enough for people to book it right now, <laughs> well, I don't know what is. Yeah. Um, you said about the the athlete who maybe has or hasn't done a preseason and has gone to kick a ball and there goes his hamstring. One question I get asked by clients is, you know, or, or typically they'll come in, I haven't been feeling any pain, so I haven't needed to get a massage. Yep. But just here we've had the, the you know, example of the athlete and, yes, you know, training is involved and whatnot, other mm. other things around that. But, you know, people come in and go, should I be, I don't, I'm not in pain, should I be getting a massage? Yeah, and look, to be honest, I don't think everybody needs a massage. Mm -hmm. And this might fly in the face of a lot of massage therapists who are trying to build a business and repeat clientele. I've probably got a little bit of a contrary point of view on this one. And I don't think us human, our human bodies need treatment by design. Um, we do things to our bodies, sport, work, certain positions we hold ourselves in for too long, um, too much exercise, not enough exercise, whatever it might be. And as a result, the tissue capacity that we have, like the ability for our muscles and tendons and ligaments and bones to withstand load gets affected negatively. And it's usually too much or not enough is the problem that we apply to our body. And so massage along with other things um, can be useful to kind of combat some of the, the symptoms of those environmental stresses that we put in our body. And so the athlete who um, you know, said, I'm feeling fine, should I get a massage? Well, possibly not, um, but if they are starting to move towards a higher higher load in their training, or if they're you know coming up to the point where they're going into their um, to the season where the the, the um, load applied to their body is increasing, then massage and other recovery protocols can be really good to help manage that so that it doesn't kind of hit that peak and and trickle over the edge and then you've got injured. So it is a great recovery tool. Um, it's not necessary for every single person, and there are other things you could do. You know, hot and cold baths. You can have people like to use compression boots and a whole range of other things. And for the athlete who's operating at a really high level, those things are important. 
but, but if you average every everyday person, if you sleep well, eat well, exercise regularly, massage may not be required. It just depends on the situation your body's in at the time. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. What is happening to our bodies after we've had a massage and the next day we go to train or, you know, you don't even have to be um, someone who's training, but you're feeling really lethargic, really mm. out of it. Yeah. Okay. So if you're really wiped out after a massage and sometimes, and you'll always feel the symptoms of that directly after, like that's when you're most kind of aware of that and you float off the table and you feel euphoric, but you want to have a sleep. Um, and, and then there's the person who pulls up kind of sore or weary or fatigued the next day. And I guess they're two different things. So if it's directly after a massage, we get an, some autonomic changes happening in the body where blood pressure drops um, and we have a reduction in, in sympathetic nervous system tone. Sympathetic nervous system is your fight or flight response. We kind of fluctuate between sympathetic and parasympathetic in any given day, in any given moment based on what's happening. When you're on the massage table, you feel comfortable, warm, supported, safe so your body goes i don't need to be in front of flight i'm not being chased by a tiger i can go rest and digest parasympathetic so your body changes into this safe recovery kind of mode and that's brilliant because that's what we're trying to achieve a lot of the time so you get off the table and you're very floaty and you know and probably ready for a sleep and so that kind of explains that change the person who pulls up um weak or even potentially sore or fatigued the next day is still potentially feeling the effects of that but sometimes the massage, particularly if it's a very strong deep tissue massage, will create some trauma. And it's a controlled trauma. It's not necessarily a negative thing and providing the massage therapist isn't a go hard or go home kind of therapist where they just, you know, dive in elbows Smash, or go home. Yeah. That's right. But we know that that's an outdated model now. Like exactly. massage shouldn't hurt. It doesn't have to be painful to be effective. But if they do a little bit too much of that so that the pressure was too aggressive, there was too much force applied to a certain part of the body, maybe the patient perceived pain at a higher level than they necessarily should have, then all of those things again can combine to put your body into a little bit of a more of a sympathetic state. And so you might have some post-treat soreness. Um, the nervous system can be a little fatigued from fighting all of that over time as well. And so there can be some weakness, some decrease in muscle tone, which is useful to manage increased muscle tone. Um, but if you're an athlete who needs to perform a, he a heavy deep tissue massage that is quite um, strong can leave the muscles feeling a little less active, a little less responsive. And so you wouldn't do a really strong deep tissue massage on an athlete who needs to perform within the next 12, maybe even 24 hours um, without giving them advice. Okay, turn up to your, to your game, to your training map, warm up properly, really do a lot of dynamic movements, um, stimulate the nervous system to support that muscular function um, because otherwise they go out there feeling just flat. Exactly. Yeah. And so in terms of um, trying to enhance that the experience after a massage, is, is there a way that we can make the benefits even um, better or last for longer following a massage? Yeah. And I guess the answer is yes, but it sort of depends on what the goal of that massage is. Yeah. So if the goal of the massage is for bliss relaxation, go to another place, then let them go, you know. Um, let them do what they want to do and having a massage and then trying to get a really good sleep afterwards is good because you're in that sympathetic state. So the sleep is going to be better. So the quality of that sleep will be better. Um, we'll often say things like drink water, stay hydrated after a massage. It helps to flush the toxins out. There we go with the toxins again. <laughs> yeah. Oops. If, I, if I'm drinking water and toxins are coming out of my body, something is... There's a problem. Yeah, that's right. And look, we all drink water and have to go to the toilet and that does expel waste products but they're normal waste products. Um, and the number of those waste products in the urine may not be necessarily that much higher because of the massage. So we should probably kind of forget about that. The advice to give someone about drinking water after massage is good advice regardless of whether they've had a massage. Hydration is good for our tissues. Exactly. And so whether it makes the biggest difference for massage, I think is up for question. But gentle stretching and moving is kind of the key thing. So we, we spend a lot of time as massage therapists, as health practitioners, trying to change the the state of the tissues. And then if the person goes from their desk to your clinic, has a massage, goes back to their desk, goes home, sits on the couch, goes to bed, gets up back to the desk, you can see a pattern that's not really supporting the change we've created. So it might be about giving them advice to combat the patterns that they put on their body. Okay, you've had a massage today. I know you're feeling great. We wanna make that last a bit longer. 
you're off to work this afternoon and tomorrow, grab your iPhone, grab your phone out, put in a little reminder for every 90 minutes, 60 minutes, what you can manage, where you're going to stand up for 30 seconds and move. Here's some stretches, here's some movements you can do. And because we mentioned that connective tissue before, it will start to deform to those shapes you put it in. If we keep changing the situation, your body's in changing the, the position and the environment, it has a less, less chance that it's going to deform back to its old habits. So the breaking the pattern that caused the problem, I think, is the answer. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. It's so funny that I've had so many, there's there not so many, there's been a few times clients will come in and, you know, want their deep tissue sort of recovery massage and then go do hill sprints straight off. Yeah, right. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> sure about that. Um, but you mentioned, obviously, the, that waste and flushing that through. Tell us more about that. What's happening in, that, in our bodies? And let's move our brains away from toxins, but what's actually sure. happening? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, there's, there's no doubt that we create some mechanical pumping of fluids in the body. And once, if you've ever played sport and had a massage, we've talked, we talk about a flush massage. You know, we're flushing the, the tissues out. And I think that is true to a degree, but maybe not to the degree we thought it was where you have a massage and you could feel like someone's pushing all that lactate or that waste products out of your sore legs and you're feeling better. Well, it's probably not milking it out of the tissue like we once thought it was, but there, it is improving that circulation, which helps to dilute those chemicals so they're less irritating to the nervous system so you don't have the same um, soreness post-treatment. Um, one, of the, one of the big things that a lot of um, therapists aren't aware of is the fact that our nerves have their own, uh, a lack, I should say, lack their own lymphatic flow. So our nerves can get irritated and inflamed. And a lot of the pain that we experience is neurological pain. So nerves being inflamed by other chemicals around those tissues or within, around the nerves, I should say. And so one of the beautiful things about massage, particularly gentle kind of therapeutic massage, is that that gentle compression kind of creates a, a, a subtle pumping motion on the nerves, which helps move a lot of the waste products out of the nerves or through them. And so where those irritants might have just accumulated before and produced their own irritation and pain and inflammation, massage can be useful to, to move that, those uh, waste products through and out of the nerves to reduce the irritation. And that's something that's really often overlooked in the effects of massage. Overlooked? Had no idea. <laughs> right. And here's, here's something even more interesting possibly is that um, nerves require about 20% of our entire oxygen uptake. So... 20% of all the oxygen we breathe is just used for nerve health and the blood supply that supplies the nerves. They've got their own specific blood supply. So they're brilliant at taking in our, in our energy, our oxygen, but they're not so great at getting rid of their own waste products. And gentle exercise, gentle movement and massage can be useful for that. Huge. Meanwhile, people don't even know how to breathe properly. Yeah, <laughs> true sometimes, yeah. And look, at breath... Um, and breath work has become a huge thing, right? And just getting people to, to breathe more fully and increase their oxygenation can be a great thing for, for general health. The and through the nose. Health. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. We have all these muscles that, are, that support and assist our breathing process, and we use a small percentage of them most of the yeah. time because it's enough to keep us alive, but maybe not enough to keep us vital and healthy, and that's, the, I guess, the difference. Huge. All right. Let's dive into some of the different um, modalities now because there are so many out there. Um, yes. And you, of course, teach um, a few of them. And that's how I got to know you and your incredible work. Um, so let's let's look at cupping firstly. Um, there's functional release cupping. There's myofascial cupping. There's wet cupping, um, which is also termed as hijama. Um, never really heard i've seen photos of it and it looks so awful yep um and fire cupping so what are the differences between all of these different modalities are they producing the same benefits and effects yeah okay so first of all we probably differentiate between fire cupping and and um myofascial cupping because they're kind of the two schools of thought so flame cupping still the term we use to describe it is where we use a flame being held by on a sort of forceps or some other device, the flame goes into the glass cup, creates a vacuum by burning up the oxygen. You very quickly remove the flame, pop the cup onto the body, and that creates suction. Contrary to that, you can have a, a it's usually a plastic cup with a manual pump, 
apply that to the skin, pull the trigger, suck the oxygen out. They both do exactly the same thing. There's no difference between the two. One uses a flame, one uses a manual suction tool. The difference is you might feel a little bit of warmth from the flame cupping. And I think a lot of people believe that the heat is kind of key to the effect. The heat is, is a side effect of the fact that you're using flame. It makes no difference really. Um, so really the effect is suction. Again, beyond that, you've got things like wet cupping you mentioned, which is where, and it's more of a traditional Chinese medicine approach where they'll lance the skin or create a little hole in the skin. Cup is applied over the top. It draws blood into the cup. I can see your face screwing up there. This year. <laughs> I've, got a, I've seen all these different, it just, yeah. it looks really awful. And then what do you do with the blood afterwards? Ah, that's the messy part, isn't it? Yeah, that's, oh, the, that's... also the difficult part to be hygienic with. And yeah. so being a very old fashioned traditional method, we didn't pr probably care about the blood too much. It was just wiped away and that's the end of the day. Um, but really it is an old fashioned technique, sit, sits squarely inside the Chinese medicine um, world. And so unless you're trained in that, it's very difficult to justify. And the hygiene risk and infection risk mm. is obviously much higher too. So it's not something we typically touch in our Western um, uh, approaches. Um, but looking more at, I guess, the, the modern approach, which is a myofascial cupping, or as I call it, functional release cupping, which is a technique I've developed where we employ movement with the cupping as well. Um, really what we're doing, and, and again, this, there's multiple layers to the effect of cupping here, but that we do absolutely see an increase in circulation. It's immediate and it's very profound, probably above what we get with massage. We get a very direct and local stretch on that connective tissue, the fascia. So we can have an effect on local areas very quickly and strongly. Um, and then there's all these really cool kind of chemical processes that take place with cupping. Um, and this is something I've dived into more in recent years. And, and depending on how deep you want to go here, I could probably talk just on that for about three hours. <laughs> <laughs> there is the key things i guess would be that you've got uh you've got three things taking place one is a mechanical force which is the stretch on the tissues we get a chemical change which is the increase in circulation um and we get a neurological response which is triggered by the chemical so one of the the really interesting thing that happens with cupping is that when we have cupping done and a lot of you will have seen this before where it'll leave a mark and we call it a mark on a bruise because it sounds better but it is actually bruised. It's broken capillaries under the skin and there'll be an accumulation of that extravascular blood, so blood outside of the blood vessels, in the tissue and it leaves a mark. And it's pretty local because that's the shape of the cup and that's where it was. Um, and then over time it'll fade and change colours and goes away. And I think that you'll see a lot of people now getting around with cupping marks, almost like it's a bit of a trophy. So look what I've had Absolutely. done. I'm, I'm an athlete or a, <laughs> yeah. you know, or a wannabe athlete. That's right. Yeah. And really, it's just a mark as a result of that strong suction. If you've ever had a had, had a hickey as a teenager, exactly the same thing, less cool. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> so now what we're having happen is with the blood in the tissue. And again, this is a more recent understanding, but a lot of people thought, well, if it's a bruise, it's a bad thing. The question is, why why doesn't it hurt? Well, when you, someone punches you in the arm or you run into the coffee table and you get a bruise, blood comes into the tissue in the same way. But you also get some tissue damage. You get some trauma to the soft tissues, the muscle tissue. You don't get that with cupping, which is why there's no pain associated with it. So the, the bruise or the marking is the, the visible sign of the, the trauma to the blood vessels, but nothing to the muscles. That's a benefit. Um, then we might say, well, it's still, it's still broken blood vessels. That's a bad thing. Now, here's the cool part. So as a result of the blood in the tissue, there's a, a, a natural and normal response to that, which releases this little enzyme called heme oxygenase one which i'd never heard of until i started off into this and think what's that, what that's actually happening this cupping here's what we found so heme oxygenase one comes into the tissue and goes right with some macrophages which kind of eat up the blood break it down which is a normal process to blood in the muscle or the tissue as a result of that the heme oxygenase one triggers off all of these different kind of chemical processes um, and as and as it breaks down the blood the blood changes color which is why we see the bruise change color over time that, that um, dark purple to more of a blue or eventually green and other colours as it pulls different components out of the heme or the blood. The heme oxygenase one has also been shown to be really effective at increasing healing rates in tissue. So if you've had an injury, it can speed up healing rates. Um, it is anti-inflammatory as well. Um, that, that little enzyme is great for reducing proliferation of, of um, growth of cells and other things that shouldn't be present in the tissue at the time. 
Um, it also reduces pain. There's a whole range of different things that this, this little enzyme does that are all positive things. There's no negative things to it. And none of those things would actually occur unless you had the blood in the tissue. And so while we think it's nice to have the cupping done, but I don't want to have the bruises. Yep, you can absolutely get some mechanical benefits and circulation benefits to that, but you'll probably miss out on some of the, the more systemic effects that you wouldn't get if you didn't have the bruise. And that enzyme is actually being tracked to, to be found even a week after the cupping in organs within our body, liver and these and other places, doing good things in those organs as a result of the fact that we had a bruise left from the cup. So, what? Yeah, there's all these things going on that happen as a result of that. And so the bruise is not a bad thing. In fact, in my, in my eyes, it's a good thing, providing the person doing the cupping doesn't create too much bruising and therefore too much blood to the body to deal with. And they're, you know, going to, to an extreme. So there's, there's a little bit of what happens. with cupping. Wow. That's incredible. I, I had no idea that such a positive effect from this enzyme mm. is then helping the organs of the body as well. Yeah, that's Just right. From a cup cupping bruise. Yeah, that's right. And and if we again cast our minds back to probably 100, 200, 300 years ago, we see cupping used a lot in European folk medicine. And one of the particularly in Italian culture, um, they used to use cupping a lot for colds and flus. So if someone had a cold, they would cup over the back and the chest to draw the cold out. Now we understand that that's not what's physically taking place, not drawing the cold out of the body. But if you think about it, well, maybe what was happening is they were triggering up a little enzyme, which is great at fighting infections and diseases and things like that. And so what could be happening is, yep, the cups were producing some bruising, some marking, but it was this little enzyme doing all the hard work. Wow. Yeah. This is completely off topic. <laughs> but then could you be using that for, I mean, you know, last two years, COVID, mm -hmm. respiratory virus? Those who are, you know, months post having it, still having issues with breathing, um, you know, getting that oxygen in. Is there something that you could try? I, I don't want to say yes, because there's no clinical trials to say yes for COVID. Sure. Right? But at the same time, it has been used for a long time for things like phlegmy kind of chests and coughs. Yeah. So if you're, you're coughing at a kind of non-dry cough and you want to move some of that more liquid off your off your chest then maybe the cups could be used to create some some change there it's you know mm. it's a bit of a leap um, but i think yeah. probably down the track we might see some um, evidence to support the effect on things that are a little bit more systemic rather than just tissue based yeah and so to be clear the only way you will have um you know this enzyme come about is if there is a mark or this bruise left by the cup yeah look different things can trigger it and um, it is a naturally occurring enzyme in the body. So our body produces it normally in response to things. But one of the a great ways to trigger it and a really effective way to trigger it in larger numbers is blood in the tissue. It mm. goes along with those macrophages to produce this process. Okay. And mm. so what about if you've got the athlete who's <laughs> gone and that the one who tore their hamstring? <laughs> yeah. Um, would, would cupping be beneficial to them? And at what stage? Good question. So if someone's got an acute injury and we've got separation of fibres, particularly in a muscle, so classic hamstring strain, you can often feel the little divot in the muscle where it's kind of separated. Muscle might not have completely detached, but there is a, a tear in some of those fibres. Mm -hmm. So in that early stage where there's still inflammation and, and um, the early stages of healing process going on, so that first 24, 70 hours, two, three, four days, I wouldn't cut directly over that area because you've got a strong mechanical force applied to an already disturbed bundle of muscle fibers or tissues. And so that's gonna prevent the, the scar tissue growth, prevent the, um, the connecting of those fibers back to the position they should be in, um, and also interrupt the normal inflammatory process going on. So yes, um, upping improved circulation, but maybe subacute and chronic presentations where the, there's no more risk of the tissue being further damaged or separated from that strong mechanical force from the cup, where increased circulation and a bit of stretch on those fibres is not a necessarily bad thing, um, that would be the time to have it done. Okay. Yeah. And, and when is the absolute, like, you should not be getting cupping done? Yeah, okay. It's difficult because everybody heals at different rates. 
Yeah. But if we were to draw a circle around it, it's going to be the first three days to seven days, probably in that first week. And if you can still press the spot and it's sore and the muscle still tests as weak, leave it alone. Yeah. You could cup above the, around, you know, other areas nearby, but leave that tissue that's been um, damaged where the lesion is, leave that alone. Yeah. And what about DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness? Mm -hmm. When uh, can cupping help that and, um, you know, during the time when, when it's really sore or, or is that yeah. something we need to leave yeah. alone? Absolutely. Now we have DOMS and there's different theories around what causes this. And I think probably most of the theories all hold a little bit of water. Um, one theory is that we get some micro trauma happening in the tissues, which absolutely happens, particularly if you're lifting weights, a little bit of separation of fibers, a um, little bit of irritation, inflammation. And as a result, that can be, that can give you the soreness. The other side of that is, okay, there's waste products that the uh, chemical waste products that are as a result of energy production in the tissues. Your cells produce energy to produce the contractions and the movements that we do. Those waste products build up in greater numbers because you've done a lot of activity. The body um, circulation, lymphatic system, and so on hasn't moved that on yet. And then you get this period of kind of catch up where the body is expelling it from the body or getting rid of all those toxins, you know, for want of a better term, those waste <laughs> products. And so in those situations where you don't have macro trauma, potentially, it might be very small micro trauma, um, and you don't have a, an acute inflammatory response that is you know, quite extreme that we get with injuries, then yeah, cupping is brilliant, really, really good. Sliding cupping is great because you don't just get the increase in circulation, but you get this, the cup sliding on the tissue, which kind of creates a ripple effect, which also helps with movement and lymphatic flow and other, you know, improved circulation and tissue elasticity and all those good things we want. Mm. Well, you've kind of just answered the next question, but I was going to ask, you know, what are the differences then between that myofascial cupping and, um, and even the functional uh, cupping where, where we are actively moving or you know, passively yep. moving the, the client. Yeah. It's just really a matter of um, local versus more global effects and then tissue shearing forces. So if you apply a cup on, on a muscle on your shoulder, which we often see the cupping marks on the shoulder, stick it on there, it's going to affect the, the fascia, the tissue and the muscle in a very local way. It affects it multiple centimetres deep, so it will go right um, a fair distance into the tissue. And we get a, a little bit of overflow in circulation around that area. So the benefits of that, when we apply a cup and slide it along the tissue, well, now we're affecting a greater area. We're also creating potentially with movement, shearing forces. So the cup might glide one direction on the tissue while we would then lengthen a muscle or lengthen tissue in another direction. Now we create this shearing force, which creates a separation of layers. It's really nice. So a classic example would be, you know, you've got that stiff, tight, low back from sitting or standing too long, whatever it might be. We've got multiple layers of connective tissue and muscle in our lower back, which should all be able to contract and move and slide nicely on one another, all being well. But when we hold positions for too long, apply too much load beyond our normal tissue capacity, the body responds by going, let's just lock that down. Connective tissue fibres come closer together, they get dehydrated, they become kind of bound up. And we use terms like adhesion to sort of describe what's going on there. So applying cupping, applying massage, applying stretching, all of these other kind of mechanical energy forces helps to decompress, create separation of layers. Those, those layers can glide and slide into one another. We get better buffering of the connective tissue by hydration in the tissue, and we get freedom of movement, less, less irritation. So sliding cupping is a way to achieve that much faster than maybe a stationary cup would use in most cases. Mm. I have to say, um, yeah, the the active range cupping that that we do that i do is something that we, yeah we certainly notice big changes straight yeah. away which Measurable. is very cool yeah yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely yeah um anything else we should know about cupping mm, lots probably <laughs> um <laughs> yeah but um, i would yes <laughs> I, I would i would say <laughs> that the main things are it shouldn't be painful so if you're going to have some going to get cupping from somebody and they're hurting you they're probably taking the wrong approach and they might be taking an old school kind of view of things and like i said earlier it does you don't have to hurt someone to make them feel better in fact it usually does the opposite of that so cupping should feel strong it should feel deep and it should feel comfortable and manageable at all times so slowly sliding a cup versus fast um, being cautious over certain areas that are more sensitive than others um, and you should be able to say to the therapist yeah that's that's a little uncomfortable 
and they should stop because the second you take someone into a situation where they're feeling threatened or in pain or discomfort, their body moves from parasympathetic back to sympathetic, goes into a guarding, protect and, um, you know, protect sort of situation. And the therapeutic benefits you get from that treatment are going to be diminished. So it's got to be comfortable. It's got to feel nice. Yeah. Brilliant. Awesome. Let's move on to dry needling. Uh-huh. Versus yeah. acupuncture. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, there's even, I, I don't know what it is, apologies. I don't know the term where you stick something on the needle and zap someone. Electro dry needling. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <the> that one. <laughs> so, what is the difference and like what is happening? Um, I guess we could go on a physiological level and then yep. um, biochemical, yep. uh, neurological. How long do you have? I've, I've got as long as you need, and this is all sounding like music to my ears. I could talk about this all day. How long is the uh, the tape you're recording on? This is all the yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, first of all, the difference between dry needling and acupuncture is probably the, the key thing because um, there's a legal kind of implication with this as well. So, acupuncture is performed by Chinese medicine practitioners or people trained in Chinese medicine, acupuncturists, TCM practitioners. And that is a protected title. So there are pre-registered, like our physios and osteos and chiros and doctors and everyone. And so there's no massage therapists, biotherapists, physiotherapists out there. Anyone that's practicing dry needling, there's none of those people are allowed to say we're doing acupuncture for that reason. So very important thing to kind of draw a line across there. Acupuncturists are trained for a minimum four years in acupuncture and Chinese medicine. And there's a whole very complex set of diagnostic criteria that goes into assessing and then delivering that treatment. It is an art form and a science unto itself. It's super complicated. We've got a lot of respect for it, um, but it is completely different to dry needling. So Chinese medicine is based on energy flow through the body, the five element theory, yin and yang, all of these kind of very old, um, very traditional approaches to health. Um, and it is a separate medical system. When we're talking about dry needling, dry needling is a technique that some acupuncturists will say is a sub-skill within acupuncture because they do a form of needling called ashi needling where they needle sore points on the body and those points don't necessarily correspond with acupuncture points. And so that's kind of the Chinese medicine version of dry needling. In our Western medical culture, we've developed this very, uh, very different and more of a structural approach and understanding to myofascial pain. So pain that we experience in our physical body. Um, and then one of the key findings that we see with myofascial pain is trigger points that I mentioned earlier. And so I guess the origins and the crux of dry needling is that typically we're trying to target at a trigger point with the needle and to reduce the pain presentations with um, that trigger point. More recent years, dry needling research has gone on to show that maybe we can do things that, are, that go beyond the treatment of just trigger points. And one of the things that we teach in our courses is like scar tissue needling and, my, and fascial needling. We can use needles to target specific muscles to produce certain neurological reflexes rather than just um, trigger point deactivation. And so it's, it's broader than just trigger points, but really that's the heart of it. Myofascial pain, something hurts. We put a needle in the appropriate spot, we reduce the pain. A very, very simple version versus a very complex acupuncture. Yeah. That's kind of the starting point. Okay. Yeah. So that pain, how, how is it reducing the pain? What's happening? Okay. So if we look at a trigger point, trigger point can be described in various different ways, but essentially you've got a small bundle of muscle fibers that are contracted. Those contracted fibers uh, produce often what is termed as an energy crisis. They are trying to produce the contraction. And as a result of that, they need fuel, they need oxygen, they need blood supply, but the contraction itself is producing a lack of oxygen and blood supply to the tissue. So the tissue itself is kind of being starved of what it needs. Um, as a result of that, we get a little bit of local irritation and inflammation because the, the tissue in that area is now uh, has a higher acidity than it should have, a lower pH, higher acidity. And anytime you talk about a body being acidic, you automatically go, well, that's not healthy, right? And so locally, the tissue has a higher acidity. We get a buildup of these um, uh, chemicals that, are, that produce various neurological responses in that tissue and they trigger or they stimulate our nociceptors, our pain receptors. So we get these little uh, neuropeptides in there um, that are irritating certain um, pain receptors that, that produces our pain. So there's kind of a chemical soup going on in the tissue, lack of oxygen, lack of blood supply, lack of ability to get rid of that. 
Then we come along with our needle, we find that sore spot, we drop it into the tissue, pops in there. As a result of that, we get a, a natural increase in circulation. There's some, a little bit of muscle damage as the needle goes through. There's some reflexes that occur to create hyperemia. We get an increase in blood flow. Blood comes in, kind of helps to move on some of those irritating substances. A little bit like we were talking about before with the massage, cleaning out those nerves. So it, it, it diffuses the area, it um, increases circulation, and it kind of uh, it, it waters down the chemical nature of the, of the area. So you don't have as much irritation. Um, then that's what's happening locally. We also have a stimulation of certain kind of sensory nerves. There's different, we have kind of four different key sizes of nerves and they all give us different input. Needle goes in, we stimulate it. There's something called an A-beta nerve, which is kind of a larger nerve, myelinated nerve. It gives us a sort of a positive sensation, that feel good ache kind of sensation that we get back to our spinal cord. The spinal cord is where those pain signals are coming into the, the spinal cord and giving us our pain sensation. So there's a little process there called the gate control theory, where a positive input comes in, blocks the pain signal, and then we get a reduction in pain. And so if you've ever, you know, as a kid, you're running along and you fall over and you scrape your knee, you run off to mum, mum pats you on your head and rubs your knee, and you go, oh, that's better, thanks mum, and off you go and play again. She's using the gate control theory. She has no idea she's doing it. And mums are way better at doing it than dads. Just so I want to put that out there as well. We're, we're good at saying, go on, just scrape it off. You'll be fine. Get, on get, get back at there. Get on with it. Yeah. Mums somehow are taught this at an early age. I don't know. But they'll kind of rub the knee, provide some positive input, and the gate control happens where we get a closing of the ability for those pain signals to get through and we have a reduction in pain. So that's, so is, that's the is, first line. Of is that the same as stubbing your toe and then grabbing your toe and just holding the toe or like rubbing the toe is that the same sort of thing partly there's sort of two parts to it so the first okay. part is that one where we provide a positive stimulus and it goes in and yep the body responds to that and um we get a closing of the, the pain gate um there's also some of those pain signals will, will make their way into the spinal cord they go up to the brain to the part of the brain that reckon that recognizes ouch i've whacked my toe and it there's a little part of the brain that has a small representation of that's where my toe is and something bad has happened and then as a result of that, your body doesn't like pain. So it sends a signal back down your spinal cord to that same area where the pain, uh, where the gate control thing occurred that I was describing earlier. And it reduces, redu it, sorry, it um, produces something called endogenous opioids. So opioids usually use management of pain. We have an opioid pandemic or epidemic around the world. And so we get a release of opioids into the spinal cord and it dampens your pain signal. So there's two kind of lines of defense. One at the spinal cord, which is the result of our positive input. And there's two, which is the one that comes from the brain, takes a bit longer, which is our natural way to reduce pain. And if you do walk along stubby toe and you just sit there and wait, the pain comes down. Not because the toe that you've just stubbed is healing or because something's going on at the toe, but because your brain has recognized it and didn't like the sensation, releases the opioids, dampens the pain signals. And so all that takes place as a result of that needle going in and the needle kind of speeds up that normal pain reduction process. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just because you've put a needle into and that's yes. it. Well, wow. yes, well... <laughs> the needle, the needle is one way to do that. Yeah. yeah. We know that we can do trigger point therapy with our thumb, with our finger, yes. with our elbow, we can press it and that all helps. But the beautiful thing about needling is, is we're not squashing stuff. Yeah. So if you've got a tissue that's already lacking blood supply and oxygen and you dive your thumb in there, that's not going to do the same thing that a needle will because a, needle, a, comp a compressive thumb will not allow an increase in oxygen. If you press, release, press, release, then maybe yes. But the beautiful thing about the needle is it disturbs less tissue on the way in. So you're not squashing a whole bunch of stuff. You're not, you're not compressing blood vessels. It produces a reflex, which increases circulation. And so it's a very non-invasive, and we say that kind of tongue-in-cheek is needling is invasive. You're putting <laughs> a needle inside their body. That's right. But it's, less, it's, it's a lot less kind of um, traumatic to the tissue in a lot of ways. And often we get people who have had trigger point therapy with a thumb or an elbow versus someone who's had it with a needle, and they'll be less sore as a result of the needle because that needle is super fine. We're talking 0.25 or 0.3 of a millimetre thick. It's really thin versus someone's fat old thumb coming into there. Yeah. Tissue. Or elbow. Yeah. Or elbow. Yeah. So what's the theory behind the twisting of the needle? Mm -hmm. So 
in our in again our, our traditional oh, sorry in our non-traditional western medical approach to, to needling we will often use a, a winding technique where you turn the needle and you turn the needle and you turn all in one direction and the beautiful thing about that technique is that imagine a, a fork going into spaghetti you turn the fork in the spaghetti it gathers the spaghetti around the fork well the needle can do the same thing to connective tissue so the little fascia fascial fibers that are invested into your muscle will kind of stick to that needle a lot of the time and gather around it so you can create actually a very local myofascial stretch in the tissue just at that location where the needle is we use that technique quite a bit in fascial needling where we target the fascial structures rather than the muscles and those tiny little fine needles you can wind them up and you can feel like a whole area of the body is being stretched in multiple directions at the same time quite a quite a strong effect so that produces the local tissue stretch um and do you want to get really nerdy now oh let's do it okay so there's a specific kind of mechanoreceptor, which is a little nerve that senses movement and stretch in the tissue called Ruffini nerve endings. And then these Ruffini nerve endings respond to, or they, they are biased by multidirectional stretches. So if you put needles into tissue and you wind them in different directions, you get multidirectional transential kind of forces. Ruffini nerve endings recognize that and they respond by triggering something called, another big word, plasma extravasation. Fluid gets pulled out of blood vessels and hydrates the surrounding connective tissue. Now your fascia gets softer and more pliable, only because the tissue was stretched in a specific, deep, slow way that the needles can do. Cupping does the same thing. So one of the one of the reasons why we use functional release cupping, where cup slides one way or moves one way while our body moves another, is because it stimulates those Ruffini nerve endings, plasma extravasation. We get a chemical change in the state of the tissue. It softens. It's more pliable. We move better sensational so then so then what's the difference between um you putting a needle into the trigger point versus you said fascial needling and was there mm -hmm. another one um was there a neuro no there's there's i think i mentioned a mechanical a chemical and a neurological okay. response yeah and so okay. if you just pop the needle into the tissue we get all of those things happening if you feel like that, if you if you assess for the patient that, yeah, there's a trigger point, but there's also some fascial thickening, well, then maybe the winding technique can address some of that right. tissue component. But if it's just a trigger point, the winding technique can actually, actually be too strong and become quite uncomfortable for the person. So you can overstimulate, over-irritate um, the person with the needle as well. Yeah. And when does the electro... Electro-draw needling happen? That's the one, come yeah. into it. Yeah, and yeah. is is that like the next level of dry needling? Um, I guess in some ways it is. Yeah. Um, it's some. It's personally, it's something I've certainly used more and more over recent years as I as I've come to better understand the mechanisms, which is what we're talking about here, mechanisms. Um, so it doesn't have to be used, but there are certain benefits to it. So one of those benefits is if you're doing EMS, which is electromuscular stimulation, electric muscular stimulation, where you attach a little alligator clip to the needle and the current goes through two needles, passes from one to the other, creates a circuit, and then the muscle contracts like a, like a beating pulse. Um, the effect of that is a mechanical effect in that it works like a skeletal pump. So when we walk, if we have swollen legs after sitting on an airplane for a long time, we get up and walk, that creates a pumping action of the muscles, helps to move a lot of those fluids out of our legs and helps with you know circulation and so on. So we get that effect happening with... Um, with EMS. A pumping action helps to move some of those irritating substances out, substance out of the tissues, so great for recovery for athletes. But also, um, again, we have a, there's always a neurological component to everything. So when a muscle contracts, it pulls on the tendon, and our tendons have something called a Golgi tendon organ, another little neurological um, structure, a mechanoreceptor that senses tension on the tendon and will, as a result of that stimulus, change the tension in the muscle. So if we have this little twitching action happening on the muscle, Golgi tendon gets stimulated, recognises, oh, that muscle's too tight, and reflexively reduces the muscle tone. So it'll tell that muscle, you're too tight, relax, chill out, just take it easy. And only as a result of the fact that we had this tugging action. If you stretch a muscle, stretch a tendon, it won't stimulate the Golgi tendon organ at all. It has to be contraction. It has to sense tug. And a twitching kind of tug on the tendon is the best way to stimulate 
Golgotetanol. It's been demonstrated in research that that's the best way. And so that EMS pumping helps to mechanically change the, the chemical state in the tissue, but reflexively reduce the muscle tone at the same time. Interesting. Mm. Is there any time that you would use the needle into a tendon? Mm, good question. There's, there's actually a lot of research to suggest that for tendon pain, needling of tendons and the sheath of the tendon can be really effective at reducing pain. But more recent research um, around tendon pathology, in fact, there's a group of Australian physios who've done some great work on this. Uh, if anyone's interested, check out Ebony Rio and Jill Cook, Craig Pernum and Shane Do Sean Docking and a bunch of these others. These guys have found that the, the best way to manage tendon pain is managing load on tendons. So it might be increasing exercise or, re or reducing exercise temporarily, but it's about applying the right load and then using specific exercises. And so while that's the most evidence-based evidence way to treat tendons, and I've used that and it's brilliant, it works really well, um, there's still this other camp that says, well, we could pop needles in there and reduce the pain. And it's true that you can put a needle into just about anything that's painful and you can have an effect on the pain gate and the endogenous opioid mechanism we talked about before. But the, the fallout effect is that you're poking a hole in a tendon. And if you've got an already pathological tendon that might be degenerative, so more chronic tendinopathies, um, there is, again, some research to suggest that if you put a, a needle in a, a, into a tendon, take a needle out, do a tendon scan, even months later, that hole will stay there. It won't close over. Tendons heal really, really slowly. And a pathological tendon may not heal at all. So my argument would be, why reduce the structural integrity of that tendon if we don't need to, right? And so, yep, you might be able to reduce the pain that way, but you could also just take a Panadol. You could have a massage. You can do these evidence-based, um, load-based protocols, which are brilliant at not just reducing pain, but also strengthening the tendon, then that'd be the way I'd go. Yeah. And and what about those um, that are injured? Uh, obviously, we're not sticking a needle just like, you know, the cupping, we're not going over the injured site, but how mm -hmm. could we use the needling um, on an injured hamstring again? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, because you're getting an increase in circulation, that's going to be helpful for the tissue. And again, providing it's not that really acute state, I wouldn't pop a needle into an already traumatised tissue that's been, you know, torn, strained. Um, but at the same time, if you've got hypertonicity, muscle tension in an area that's as a result of an injury, as a result of pain, as a result of whatever, you can needle distally to the area, so away from that area, which is going to help reduce the pain sensation, reduce the muscle spasm and guarding, and that might then reduce the problem or the symptoms of the problem. Um, if someone comes in with a hamstring strain, needling is probably not going to be my first go-to thing. But then down the track, the healing hasn't occurred effectively, as in if the tissue might have come back together, but the delay, there's been a delayed response because they have, haven't done their uh, rehab protocols properly or they keep irritating or whatever. Then after it's gone out of that really acute state, you might actually use some needling in the area to trigger a local inflammatory response. So a little bit of microtrauma in the area, a little bit of inflammation, and the inflammation is going to then trigger off that healing response again. And so that might be the kickstart healing process in some cases. Yeah. And for that person who is, you know, tra training really hard, they've, they've you know, had injuries, let's just say, we'll bring it back to that hamstring, stick with mm. it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they're not feeling in any pain. In terms of the needling, if there's trigger points or, or whatever it is in the area and you, you know, you're stimulating, you're getting really great response and they feel good, but you know, they're continuing their training load. They, they might be in the peak of their um, training load. Mm -hmm. um, how, like how long does that treatment stick for? And is it something that we need to repeat? Mm, okay. And I think the answer to this question is probably the same for just about every modality, not just yeah, dry needling. It depends. It, yeah. It, well, it kind of depends. It's, it's, it will be influenced by external factors, so the other things that's going on in the body. So if you've got that athlete that is reaching a peak in their training load, so they're doing lots of work, and as a result of that work, they're kind of walking the line between high function, high performance, and injury, then it doesn't take much to send you either way. And so if you go and get a massage or you get dry needling or you get cupping or something like that, you might have a reduction in tone, a reduction in pain, and, and a, an improvement in recovery. But then if they in that state of post-treatment where there's, there is a reduced tone and a reduced ability for those muscles to contract appropriately, 
then you might actually increase your chance of injury afterwards. So that's something to consider too. You know, too much treatment or the wrong treatment at the right time means that that person, like we were talking about earlier, person goes out and does hill sprints or something, and all of a sudden, bang, they've torn the hamstring because the muscle wasn't well prepared. It wasn't in the state it should have been. In actual fact, that person probably shouldn't have had a treatment. They should have been doing some dynamic stretching, some explosive plyometrics, and then they run. You know, that wasn't the right thing. So it's the right thing at the right time. Um, and to sort of circle back to the question, how long will it last? Well, what are they doing after the treatment to prolong the effect of it? What's the tissue health like? What's their general health like? What's their recovery like? There's a thousand variables. Um, and I think if, if you've seen any client, usually at about day four, they call you up and go, I was feeling really good, but it's starting to come back now. So for your general population, four or five days, old habits start to, to pile back on life happens, your body starts to revert back to old habits. So it's about the treatment as a first aid, so first intervention to change the state. And then it's about what happens after it is that other things that will influence the ongoing effect and the longevity of it all. Brilliant. It's all about choices. Yep. <laughs> or you make sure you make the right, make the right ones and you'll be fine. <laughs> Absolutely. Easy as that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Is there anything else? I mean, yes, there is plenty we need to know about dry needling and I'm sure we could go on um, for hours, but, you know, if we do, then people need to pay for it. Um, so <laughs> is there anything else we need to know that you think before moving on? Yeah, I'm going to say the same thing that I said after cupping. Shouldn't be painful. And I've heard horror stories of where people have done things like put needles into a calf and then flexed and you know, extended the ankle, dorsiflex plantar flex the ankle so that the needle's kind of moving in the tissue and, and they're thinking, well, that's going to create lots of pulling on the fibres and stretch it all apart. No, it's just creating trauma. It is damaging stuff. So um, that or very aggressive pecking, like where the needle goes in and you move it in and out of the tissue very, very uh, aggressively and for long periods of time. Those techniques are all okay when used in the right situation at the right time, except maybe the movement of the ankle one. Um, <laughs> Don't do that. That's right. But nothing should be painful. There'll be times when you'll create some discomfort and the symptoms are going to be manageable and the person will say, yeah, I can feel that. It's okay, though. That's fine. But at no point should the patient say, oh, that's too much. Get the needle out of me. So yeah. if you're going to see somebody and the needling technique is uncomfortable, it's painful. You're feeling worse afterwards and the next day you've got a lot of post-treatment soreness then i think the approach was too aggressive um, and there's so many ways to use dry needles um, and maybe that one is not the one for you interestingly uh, you know with dry needling or even massage for that matter mm -hmm. or any any modality modality um you know, when clients respond, they, they, it's fantastic straight after, but then the next day it's really sore or, in fact, they've come up with a bruise from the needle or obviously the cups, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, an elbow. Like um, what's happening then if they've had a really, I guess, um, exaggerated response, but during the treatment they they've, were fine? Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, the post-treatment soreness, is, as you sort of, explain can be as a result of bruising and trauma and things that can happen in the massage. And because we're getting those nice opioid releases, nice endorphins releases during the massage, a lot of that gets dampened. So the environment we create in a, in a nice massage reduces our threat response. And so you can produce what would normally be fairly uncomfortable or pressure that might be unmanageable in a nice, relaxing, more deep therapeutic massage. And the patient will go, that's a good pain. I kind of like that. But if, if you've done that same thing to them out on the street while they're walking along, probably go, ouch, get off me, that's painful. And so in the moment, we kind of lose our perception of what is painful or damaging until after the fact. And so our job as therapists is to monitor that, recognise that yeah, as we kind of ease our way to the tissues, the body's going to be more accepting of what we, what we give it and we have to be a little bit moderate in the way that we deliver it because you can easily overdo it and then leave them sore after the fact. Mm. Absolutely. Amazing. Sean, I could talk to you for hours and this could go on for weeks, but we should probably leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. If people are wanting to either look at the studies that you said you've got on your website or um, if there's therapists out there listening and, and want to know more about your courses, how can they find you? Easiest place to go would be um, our website, so advancedclinicaled.com, so for advanced clinical education, advancedclinicaled.com. Um, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, a whole bunch of places. So, 
Brilliant. I'll have that all in the show notes for easy access. To finish off, one last question. Mm -hmm. As someone wanting to get a treatment out there, what is your best advice to them when they're trying to decide what sort of treatment to be getting? Yeah, right. I would say um, ask somebody who is in the same demographic as you who they see. So if you're a, an older person with aches and pains, ask another older person with aches and pains. Don't ask a young grandson who's a high-level athlete who they're going to see, right? It's, you have to, it's all things in context. And so uh, it's not even which, which modality the person should see. It's which practitioner. Because like I said at the start, everyone has their own focus, their own bias. You know, both you and I were trained in massage. I can guarantee we'll have different ways in which the way we treat. So I would say ask for a recommendation from a peer in a similar kind of demographic set about who they see and what benefits they get and then follow that. Amazing. Sean, you've been awesome. Thank you so much for answering all these questions today. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Sean from Advanced Clinical Education. If you are a massage therapist and want to learn more about his courses and how to enroll and further your education with Sean, check out his business, Advanced Clinical Education. I'll have all of those in the show notes for easy access for you. If you're someone who is listening in and found this really valuable, but have more questions, send them in and hopefully we can maybe get Sean back on the show answering more of your questions because I know after listening back and doing the edit, uh, there are so many more questions that came up for me. So I know if they came up for me, they certainly came up for you. So get in touch if they did come up for you and hopefully we can get Sean back on the show answering all your questions once again. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends, leave a review and subscribe because all of that helps this little podcast going strong. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I appreciate you. Have the best day, week, month and year. And here's to a world of bodies built better. there you have it thank you again for tuning in a little bit different to our usual format but hopefully you enjoyed that love to do some more of that for you in the future um, if you've got any questions for us as always send them in thanks for listening